Hello, everybody. Greetings, greetings,、uh, fellow space dwellers and space explorers and stargazers.、Uh, my name is Athena. I am your host of Space Talk, and I am just—I feel like, as always, I'm always excited to get into a whole new subject to explore. Whether it's what's visible in the night sky or it's a historical figure,、uh, there are so many things that we can continually. Look to when it comes to astronomy in the field of astrophysics and space exploration. So, first of all, happy Thursday, January sixth, wherever you are listening from. I hope that you're having a wonderful day or morning or evening, depending on your time zone. If you're in the evening, I'm already envious because that means you can literally be stargazing right now while listening to Space Talk, which I think would be pretty awesome. Um, actually, if you are interested in ever hearing a space talk episode live from stargazing, let me know. Send me an emoji below、uh, if you want to send through maybe a party hat or a thumbs up.、Uh, I would love to do that. I think that would be super fun、um, on my next stargazing adventure. I can do a space talk live、uh, from well the、uh, the backyard、uh, with the telescope and exploring the night sky. So I think that. Already was a super fun way to sort of kick off the new year is by looking at everything that's already visible in the night sky、uh, for for January. So if you haven't already listened to those episodes, I recommend going back and giving it a listen. I do cover both the north and the southern hemisphere for、uh, what just what's visible this week. And actually, you guys have a beautiful deep sky object, a globular cluster. That is visible, so you'll definitely want to、uh, go check that out. Hopefully, you, you, if you haven't seen it already, you'll be able to watch it、um, and do some do some stargazing. But this episode is not going to be jumping into what's visible in the night sky. We're going to be jumping into well,、uh, historical figures, just like what the title says. So for、um, this week, we have Charles Messier. Now Charles Messier is probably one of my favorite historical astronomers,、um, and that's for like many reasons.、Uh, one is his upbringing, two is how he got into the field of astronomy, and three is his famous Messier catalog, which you probably have heard about by now.、Uh, if not in your astronomy class, then probably here on this podcast from things like. Looking for messier objects with the letter M in front. Whenever I talk about an object that says like M forty two, for instance, which is the Orion Nebula,、uh, always keep in mind that it is cataloged as a messier object. So Charles Messier is who we're talking about here, and there is a little bit of fun facts in there also as far as how he made his catalog and why he made it. But let's just go ahead and jump into his early years. Now, unlike our previous historical figure, Johannes Kepler, who was born into poverty, this week's historical figure, Charles Messier, was actually born into a wealthy French family on June twenty-sixth in seventeen thirty. However, he was one; he was the tenth of twelve children. So he's one of twelve children, which is I can only imagine what it's like to live in a household of twelve kids. Um, and that being said, he didn't really have access to good education、uh, at that time. It was really hard to come by when it came to、uh, a lot of times. It was education through、um, homeschooling, and 
by then with 12 different kids in the family. Uh, thankfully, it was a wealthy family, so it wasn't too much of a struggle as far as that goes. But it was still something that um, ended up changing. And it changed when his father passed away. He was only 11 years old. And that financial status of wealth quickly changed into not poverty, but just like a lower income class. And that made it really difficult for him. But that led him into uh, really wanting to pursue formal education, be schooled at home by his older brother, and then eventually going to follow astronomy. When he first developed his interest in astronomy, it was actually because of a comet that he first saw. If you don't know about Charles Messier already, he is a famous comet hunter. And I think that it's no coincidence that what got him first interested in astronomy was a comet. And in fact, it wasn't just any comet. It was a six-tailed comet of the year 1744. And that's what launched not only his interest, but also his career. Uh, he actually ended up being hired first as a draftsman by Joseph Nicolas de la Cille, uh, which is also an astronomer uh, in the French Navy at the time. And a draftsman today is typically used for CAD designs, so computer-aided uh, design software, different things, typically like drafting up uh, illustrations. Back then, there's also tied to um, architectural designs. But at the time, he was the draftsman underneath another astronomer. So what was he drafting? Well, celestial objects. Also, during this time, he started to learn how to use astronomical instruments and then eventually he became a very skilled observer and got promoted as clerk of the Marine Observatory at the Le Hotel de la Cluny in Paris. Now, all of this happened before age 21. Keep that in mind. I think that all of this is pretty astonishing how he was able to just like move forward so quickly. Um, I don't have much information on his siblings. I'm very curious of what paths they went down. But by age 21, he ended up taking a position as the astronomer with the French Navy. And so this is when he started to do a lot more with his very own research. He eventually became a member of, of the prestigious Royal Society of London in 1764. And then he ended up getting married by age 40 in 1770, but ended in tragedy where his wife ended up dying during childbirth along with his son only two years later. And so it, you have this this really like combination of uh, almost like it seems like good luck at first that he's born into a wealthy family and then you know, horrible tragedies happening like his father passing away and then his wife and then his son. And then you have him working from a lower status, a lower position as a draftsman to eventually becoming the chief astronomer of the Marine Observatory. And so you start to see this growth. And I think that this is probably some of the most interesting stuff when it comes to historical figures. This is why uh, I love getting into this kind of stuff, because each historical figure ends up having, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're human beings. I think we have to keep that in mind. Oftentimes, I think we associate a name with sort of the, the status that we see them at or the podium that we hold them up on. But we have to understand, too, that they also, you know, go through illness. They also go through pain and, and uh, destruction, but they also go through achievements and humbleness. Um, and so this is a really important thing to keep in mind, especially with Charles Messier. Now, <clears throat> moving into 
the Messier catalog. This is something kind of interesting of how it happened. Charles Messier was a comet hunter, as I mentioned earlier. His main thing was to try and search for comets. And uh, the reason that happened was actually because um, he started searching for a comet that was supposed to return in 1757 by Edmund Halley. But there was a mistake in the calculations of his employer, which ended up leading to him searching in the wrong area of the sky. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but it's like the worst thing ever. I remember like a while ago looking for a meteor shower and looking at the total wrong area of the sky for the meteor shower. I had mixed it up with another meteor shower and was looking at the totally incorrect area of the sky and was like, where are all these meteors? Um, and also wrong time of the, the, the night as well. And so it, it can be a total tragedy when that happens. And this is what happened to Charles Messier. He ended up looking in the wrong area, totally missed the comet. But something interesting happened. That following August, in the following year, in 1758, he discovered a kind of fuzzy blob-looking patch in the sky. It was in the constellation of Taurus. And after constantly repeating observations and, and looking at this over and over again, he noticed that it didn't move in relation to the background stars. So he knew, okay, well, this wasn't a comet. This is a waste of my time. I don't need to be looking at this. And he is like, you know, at, at the time he's thinking, okay, well, I'm looking for comets, not these other objects. So he decides to name this object and catalog it. This became Messier 1 or M1. And this was the first entry into the Messier catalog, which at the time he called objects to avoid. Because he didn't really know what it was at the time. He knew it was something that wasn't moving. He knew it wasn't a comet. So basically it didn't interest him. It interested him, I'm sure, to an extent. He's probably, you know, he's an astronomer. He probably was like overall really interested in anything in the night sky. However, it wasn't aiding in his research. And so he ended up cataloging it as a CR1 or M1. And today we know it as the Crab Nebula. The Crab Nebula, you guys have probably seen images of the Crab Nebula before. Uh, absolutely beautiful, beautiful nebula. Uh, let me pull it up right now just to look at it, just to describe it to you guys. Um, this image, I think it's been on tons of different books. I wish I could remember which book it was that it was on. Um, and I believe it's a super, it's a supernova remnant and it has a pulsar. So uh, what's really interesting is you can see this in the constellation Taurus. Um, it has been imaged in multiple different um, uh, wavelengths. So you can see it both in ultraviolet, you can see it in the infrared. And then, of course, when you image it and overlay it with what elements would be present with a little bit of editing, you can see it has this greenish color, this green and reddish orangish hue. Really beautiful, beautiful remnant. It's about 65,000 light years away. That's an estimate. So it's like plus or minus about another thousand. And its absolute magnitude is a negative 3.1. So that being said, again, um, we would in a dark enough sky should be able to see it with a pretty small telescope or with a set of binoculars. Uh, really, really cool uh, object. Messier one, Crab Nebula. Now, moving forward with uh, Charles Messier's exploration, he altogether ended up cataloging 
uh, somewhere around 40 nebulae and 13 comets, cataloging over 100 of his objects in his catalog. So that later included galaxies, later included globular clusters, other open star clusters, so many different objects. So it's it's absolutely fascinating just how many things he's been able to discover, not only in his lifetime, but the fact that it continued beyond that. The fact that there were still discoveries being made by other astronomers after Charles Messier that contributed to the Messier catalog. And then finally, we now have the modern day catalog known as the NGC or the new general catalog, which is typically where newer discoveries would be put in. Now we're going to do a quick commercial break and then we're going to jump, sorry, music break. I keep wanting to say commercial break. And then we're, we're going to jump back into uh, some more details about Charles Messier. All right, let's jump back into it. So exploring the Messier catalog further, um, I want to first sort of, uh, yeah, I want to propose a, I don't know, a task for us all to take, which is to explore the Messier catalog and choose your favorite Messier object. Um, I then would love to kind of chat about it in a future episode and see which one is your favorite and why. Um, There are so many messier objects in the catalog that are just absolutely stunning. A lot of them have been imaged by the Hubble Space Telescope. And I could only imagine if Charles Messier was around today, what he would think of these images taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. So moving into the next uh, object that was cataloged is M2, which was actually a nebula previously discovered by an Italian astronomer. Um, which is interesting. Back then, they they thought of it as a nebula. They were thinking, okay, they understood interstellar dust and clouds. Um, They understood that there was some form of molecular cloud happening in space that was a nebula. But it turned out it was not a nebula, just like Andromeda. They thought the Andromeda galaxy was the Andromeda nebula. But in fact, Messier 2 is a globular cluster in the constellation Aquarius. Very cool, beautiful looking globular cluster. Uh, And that ended up being the second object of the Messier catalog. Now, what's interesting is as he continued to sort of explore all these objects and catalog them, 
it ended up becoming quite confusing to him, uh, at least from what we've seen by by records of his um, his journaling, what he's written down. He later said that he undertook his search so that astronomers would no more confuse these same nebulae with comets just beginning to appear. Again, he was prioritizing comets. He didn't care for these other objects. His main thing was look for comets, find them, and then track them. <clears throat> but everything else, he really did, wanted to try to yeah, just let other astronomers know, hey, look out for these objects, avoid them, not knowing that now the Messier catalog became one of the biggest and most exciting, uh, I would say, like, uh, compiling of astronomical objects that um, amateur astronomers use. I don't know about you guys, but I've definitely used the Messier catalog to explore the night sky. And so what ended up happening was he ended up uh, really becoming determined to search for more objects. And within a seven-month period in 1764, he ended up adding another 38 objects to his catalog. And then on March 18th in 1781, Messier recorded nine new nebulae. And then he also began to include nebulae discovered by other astronomers. So not just all objects that he discovered. This is what I was mentioning earlier. He discovered somewhere around 100, cataloged them, but there were so many more objects that ended up being added to the catalog that weren't just his discoveries, which is really cool. And then all of a sudden, um, moving forward, uh, by 1781, Messier had now identified 103 nebulae as part of his catalog. 40 of the objects that had been discovered by Messier himself and then seven objects to have been recorded by Messier were added to the catalog sometime around the 20th century, with the final entry being M110 in 1967. The final object was added in 1967. So that's really interesting to think about. We're going from the 1700s to now the mid-1900s, and this is when there finally was the final object that was added to the Messier catalog. M10 is a galaxy, really massive galaxy. It's about 85,000 light years radius. It's somewhere around 2, 2.6 million light years away from Earth. Its mass is about 9.3 billion solar masses. Solar masses is the mass of the sun. So imagine 9.3 billion suns combined to make the mass of this entire galaxy. And it's estimated to be somewhere around 10 billion stars within this galaxy. And of course, it's found in the Andromeda constellation. So this is, uh, this is a really interesting, interesting uh, galaxy. This is um, also a satellite of the Andromeda galaxy. So M110, which also has Another catalog name is NGC 205. It's a dwarf elliptical galaxy. And that is what is a satellite of the Andromeda. And when we say satellite, it's pretty straightforward. But in case you didn't know, uh, it is a galaxy in which orbits nearby gravitationally to another object. Just like how the moon is Earth's natural satellite. And then the Earth has a ton of, um, you know, human-made satellites, mechanical satellites uh, that are not natural satellites. 
So that's that's basically the summary of the Messier catalog of Charles Messier. Some takeaways from this is that you know Charles Messier, born into a family of twelve twelve children, um, experiences uh, you know death at a really young age from family members, and then eventually his own wife and child one day, and ends up going down this path of astronomy, starting off uh, in a really small job as as a draftsman eventually working his way up as astronomer and ends up cataloging all of these incredible objects that he didn't even know what some of them were at the time, all to just try and look for comets. And he did do a pretty good job of finding comets. He still found about 40 comets. So that's pretty, that's pretty cool. I'd say that's definitely an achievement. And uh, yeah, that is, that is about everything that I had to share as far as Charles Messier goes. I'm going to do one more music, short music break, maybe like 15 seconds. And then I'm going to share a little bit of details about my favorite messier objects. Okay, let's jump back into it before the music drops. That is like my favorite beat drop ever. Um, so some of my favorite objects. Um, I'm going to start with M81 because it is probably the most famous currently because of the black hole that sits at the center of the M81 galaxy. Again, another thought about like if only Charles Messier was around and could see the first image ever taken of the area around a black hole. Um, I guess we could just say the first ever ever image of a black hole. We don't have to be like super uh, semantic about it and specific and just be like, okay, it's a black hole, even though it's technically the, I think it's the photon sphere around it and the accretion disk gets all illuminated, but still super cool. Um, yeah. Black hole of seven, 70 million solar masses. I don't even know if Charles Messier un, like knew about black holes during his time period. Um, but if he did... I think he probably would have really appreciated the fact that we ended up imaging that of one of his very own objects. Then moving into M51 is one of my favorite galaxies other than the Milky Way. M51 is the Whirlpool Galaxy. reason I love it so much is because it's currently in the middle of a cosmic dance with another galaxy, a dwarf galaxy that it's starting to collide with. It's, it's currently in the process of becoming a galaxy merger with, um, let's see, I believe it's Messier 51A and 51B. So that small dwarf galaxy, if you uh, haven't looked up images, I recommend doing it. So beautiful, such a beautiful spiral galaxy, but it's starting to now gobble up, have a, a massive cosmic cannibalism, as I think some astronomers will call it, um, with another galaxy. And I think what's going to be interesting is, you know, if you haven't seen a galaxy simulation of uh, mergers before, it goes from these beautiful, very detailed structures of galaxies to eventually becoming these, 
very odd shaped sort of uh, like irregular and sort of oval shaped galaxies afterwards. Because I mean, if you think about it, if you I did this with uh, some students once when I was doing a sixth grade astronomy class. We had a bowl of milk and we added in a few drops of blue food coloring. And you take a long like stick, like skinny stick or a straw, and you like swirl it a little bit. It'll start to naturally form into like, you know, these, these arms. It'll start to look like a spiral galaxy. It'll start to sort of have this curved shape to it. And it'll swirl like a whirlpool pretty evenly. But what will happen if you then start to grab the other side of the bowl and you add another drop and you start to swirl that area and then those two start to merge, what ends up happening? Everything ends up getting mixed together and it looks kind of messy. And that's, I think, would say is a pretty accurate depiction of a galaxy merger. It ends up looking quite... Uh, yeah, kind of crazy. Now for my final favorite uh, messier object is the Orion Nebula. And the reason I love it so much is, well, for one reason is when I was doing research as an undergraduate student, I was doing research on protoplanetary disks, which are disks forming around newborn stars in the Orion Nebula. The Orion Nebula is a perfect place for newborn stars to form. It's also called the Stellar Nursery. And the reason why this is so cool and exciting is because um, we see life happening from death. You know, we have these areas of space where probably formed from either a star, multiple stars that have died and expelled out all of their elements. And those very elements are the seeds that are necessary for creating new life in the universe, especially star life. And so the Orion Nebula is one of these places. The Orion Nebula um, also you can see with the unaided eye just below the belt in the Orion constellation. Of course, you can check it out with a telescope or binoculars. Um, I don't think I've even looked at it through a telescope or binoculars. I've only looked at it through... um, you know, with with my own eyes, or also when I collected data from Hubble. So I guess technically I was looking at it through a telescope, but I wasn't looking at it with my eyeball attached to an eyepiece. Um, And so with that being said, uh, really, really cool area of research there uh, for the Orion Nebula. Um, And this goes to show too how there are so many areas in space where there's just a giant molecular cloud with interstellar dust and gas that have all of um, the proper materials uh, to actually create new star life. And this is so exciting because if that star life can live long enough for, say, this disk to form around it, that disk is where planets like Earth form eventually after millions of years. But it's still so exciting because you can now see these early stages and formations that our very own solar system went through. So when we look into the universe, it's like we're looking back in time and also seeing the current time and also seeing the future. We're seeing life, death, and birth, or I guess birth, life, and death. That would be the proper order. And I think that that's something that's just like so fascinating that I don't know if we can really see anywhere else when it comes to life. So if you ever want to do research in um, yeah, maybe trying to find the possibility of other worlds, forming beyond earth, 
check out some research on protoplanetary disks in the Orion Nebula. The biggest, I'll give you a little bit of a hint of what my research was, was mainly about, of kind of the problem with proplids, is that <laughs> there tends to be other stars nearby. It's a crowded nebula. It's really, you know, there's a lot of star formation happening. And sometimes that star formation can disturb a nearby proplid. And so if you have a really big star that just formed, its solar radiation or stellar radiation and stellar winds can disturb a proplid from forming a proper disk around it. It can actually start to cause not only radiation, it can cause for the matter to no longer accrete and to get blown away, will get really radiated, get way too hot. Um, it also will start to form an ionization front on the outside of the proplid. Um, and sometimes this can even harm uh, just, yeah, the, the possibility of anything starting to coalesce within that accretion disk. It can harm any probability of uh, anything starting to accumulate, like dust bunnies in, in your room, for instance, um, if you just constantly have these nearby stars. And so with that being said, uh, really interesting area of research, but also really uh, sometimes can be unsatisfactory because you know that it's possible that it might not live long enough. Um, but if it does, eventually it can turn into an exoplanetary system. Which reminds me, uh, we are going to be getting into exoplanets in the next episode. What is an exoplanet and why should we care? I think uh, something I don't do often enough here on Colin is talk about why we should even care about this research. And I guess I don't do that because a lot of times I know that, you know, sometimes whoever I'm talking to, such as you guys, listeners, we care about this stuff. We love space. And so I don't necessarily need to like sort of tell you guys why to care because you kind of probably already know. Uh, but I do think it can be a pretty nice and maybe even humbling reminder of why we should care about the universe and why we should explore these things. Um, and my number one reason is like because I just really, really want to find life beyond Earth. And I think a lot of people do. Um, and so when it comes to exoplanets, that might be one of our biggest potential routes for making that happen. So that's about everything that I have for this episode of Space Talk. Um, I hope you all get to get out tonight and explore the night sky. And until next time, ad astra.